Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone.
paranormal activity in Cleveland. Uh, our, our special guest is Laura DeMarco. She is the editor of the Arts and, Ten- Arts and Entertainment section of the prestigious Cleveland Plain Dealer. She has a wonderful, just-published uh, biography uh, travelogue of one of America's leading authors, Mark Twain. Her book is entitled Mark Twain's America, Then and Now. It shows photos of uh, places where Mark Twain uh, was then in like you know, 1860s, uh, 70s, um, and how they look today. Uh, there is insightful biographical information that accompanies the couple hundred uh, photos. It's an excellent companion piece to Twain's novels. Um, and I have to thank one of Nightlight's uh, regulars, Mark Duisiak, for connecting me to our guest. And it will be worth the $5 I, I owe him for that. And ten, 10 if he actually has to listen to me on our free archives. But anyhow, uh, Laura DeMarco is here. Hi, Laura. How are you? Oh, great. Thanks so, uh, so much for having me. I, I didn't know Mark got a finder fee for this. Just put something in a whole yeah, new life. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah he, he cost me a lot of money just dealing with him, yeah. but uh, uh, we'll, save, we'll save that for another story. <laughs> right. <laughs> But you know, he, he yeah, uh, Mark's a great guy. He's one of your colleagues too. So, but um, you know, before you you know start tackling uh, your your uh, uh, you know Mark Twain's America, um, you, you know, let's just get a little background. What prompted you to? Uh, uh, write this book. What's the need today? Um, well, I'll, I'll just tell you a little bit about how I came to this book, and then you know why I think there's a need today. Um, two, uh, three years ago, no, two years ago, I wrote a book called Lost Cleveland. I'm a, a third generation Clevelander, and it was about you know lost landmarks, places in the city of Cleveland that are long gone. You know, amusement parks that have disappeared. Um, whole neighborhoods that are gone, buildings that are gone. Um, it's sort of like about the ghosts of Cleveland. And then, mm-hmm. you know, I got tired kind of, of, of talking about just things that were gone, so I wrote a second book called Cleveland Then and Now, and that was about um, transformed places in Cleveland, places that, mm-hmm. um, you know, tell the, the city's history through their transformation. And, and Cleveland, your listeners may not, no, um, was once the fifth largest city in America. And it was a really wealthy city. I mean, John D. Rockefeller got his start there. So it's a city with a fabulous history. And, and those books were both for a company called Pavilion Books, which is a London-based publisher. They uh, mostly do, like, architectural heritage books. And they do, I mean, they do all sorts of things, but their specialty is kind of, like, about, uh, you know, like, lost landmarks and, as I said, architectural heritage worldwide. Um, so... I was talking with the publisher of those previous two books in in London. I mean, I wasn't in London, although I have been there to meet him. Um, you know, and it just came up that we were, like, both big Mark Twain fans. You know, me, uh, 
a native Clevelander, him, a native Londoner, and we just started talking about Mark Twain. This was just about a year ago. And he said, you know what would be so interesting was to take this approach that we've done with these other books um, where they tell the story through um, pairing vintage photos with photos of what places look like now. For example, they've done a Civil War battlefield set in now book. And they said they had never applied this approach to a person, but they said, why don't we try this approach with the person? Because Mark Twain, more than anyone else, as you know, um, he traveled. He was, he was, you know, he was a rambling man. He traveled around the world, and and for a few writers, um, has such a, such a sense of place or home been so important. So that's how this approach to Mark Twain's biography through the geography of his life came about. Well, it, it's a very effective uh, approach, and yeah, yeah. And it just it seems like, uh, you know, uh, Mike Piper, one of my friends, uh, you know, uh, called me the other day, and uh, he, he said, uh, r- reminded me that th- there were some um, um, a few chapters from uh, Huckleberry Finn or Tom Sawyer that were recently discovered in Buffalo. So it it, it just seems like there's more information that is just being discovered about this iconic American author. Yeah. And I think that's because he was, I mean, I mean, you could argue that that he is the iconic American author Um, more than anybody. I think he dealt with America as a whole and, and, you know, the really big issues of America of his day, you know, slavery, racism, um, mm-hmm. what it meant to be a child, you know, what it meant to grow up. Um, uh, he lived everywhere in America. So, I mean, it, there are so many Mark Twain scholars. There's, you know, uh, so much to find. Um, you know, Buffalo was a very important city in his life, too. You mentioned Buffalo, and they do have um, the Huck Finn manuscript in the library there. So, um, you know, I think every time you read Mark Twain, too, you you find you discover something new as well. I mean, whether it's his fiction or his nonfiction, I think, you know, whether I think the age that you are when you read it, maybe that helps you discover new things and just, you know, rereading things, you'll, you'll notice um, things you haven't seen before in those books. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, you, you already touched on uh, Mark Twain, it was made travels to uh, Europe. You know, we'll go into that in more detail in a little bit. But um, yeah, let's look at where he was born, where he got his start. Um, it just didn't seem like it's a promising start uh, to someone who would grow up to be an acclaimed author around the world and technically where he was born doesn't exist because they're right. uh, according to the, the last census. So that that's kind of like a uh, Twain-esque uh, view of where he got started. It, it's, it's not there anymore. <laughs> right. He was born in so a town it, called Florida, Missouri. 
um, November 30th, 1835. So we just um, celebrated his birthday last week. Um, and Florida, at the time he was born, had 100 people only. This was about 150 miles outside of St. Louis, um, kind of in the middle of Missouri. His parents, um, you know, had moved there. He was the sixth child born, and they, they were living in basically a one-room cabin, um, white cabin. And um, he would later say, you know, he's born one person into a town of 100, that he did something that many of the greatest men in history had done. He had increased the population you know, a city uh, by 1%, you know, which is quite a feat, of course. Um, and they moved out of there by the 1840s, and then they weren't the only ones. Um, the population of Florida declined pretty quickly from those 100 or so people. Um, and today it is, in fact, a ghost town. There's no recorded residents of Florida, Missouri. Um, his cabin, or what is believed to be the the, the Clemens, he obviously his name was Samuel Clemens. The Clemens cabin has been preserved um, as a museum heritage piece. So then, in the 1840s, they moved to the most famous um, town associated with Mark Twain, Hannibal, Missouri, of course, um, okay. uh, not too far from Florida, but right on the Mississippi River. And that was a, a big bustling town for the time. You know, it had logging and then. Um, um, you know, farming and um, a lot of pigs were raised there. So they moved there because his father, J.M. Clemens, um, who was a justice of the peace um, and did all sorts of things, he was sort of jack of all trades, um, wanted to move there. He felt he could uh, be more prosperous there for his family. Okay. And when when they, the Clemens family got to Hannibal, um, it it does like a frontier river town at at that time. Um, just seem seem like you know, people were just like living on the periphery of civilization. It, it, you know, a lot of the Contemporary photos uh, look like people you know, were almost living in squalor. Uh, you, know, you got the yeah, uh, uh, you know, just streets were dirt and mud, and you know, houses looked like they were falling down. Um, if the Mississippi River flooded, it looks like it is you know, relatively. Uh, relatively flat in, in the area, so you know, the water is just going to keep going. It, it, it just, um, you know, your photos really bring to life the what it was like at that time. But you, know, you, you also have contemporary photos of the. Uh, neighbors, people, you know, not uh, up the street, who yeah. Sam knew, and they would become characters, what, 40 years later in right. his more celebrated novels. Can, can, can you tell us a little bit about, like, 
what the um, city of Hannibal has done to uh, preserve the Twain legacy in the town? Yeah, so, you know, you mentioned, um, to go back to his time first, you mentioned that it was was kind of a rough-and-tumble town, a frontier town, and yet it was also, you know, at that point, a town of possibilities, right? I mean, people were moving west and further away from the East Coast to kind of pursue what really was the American dream. So, I mean, this was a place where people could um, pursue those dreams. His father's never worked out too well, as his older brother, Orion, did not. Um, uh, Samuel Clemens obviously was the most successful person in his family, but um, so he lived in a house on uh, Hill Street, um, on and off. I mean, they lost the house at some point, but he and his siblings and parents mostly lived there, and his had the street and his brother opened up a a newspaper in the town Orion um, and so this you know all kind of forms him but what also forms him as you mentioned is the people of Hannibal um, his next door neighbor basically was Tom Blankenship um, Tom was the son of the town drunk um, he was very um, poor um, kind of a wild boy he didn't go to school his parents couldn't for him to go to school. He ran the streets, and Tom would later become the basis for Huckleberry Finn. Um, across the street, there was a girl who would become the basis for Becky Thatcher. So he's meeting all these people in this town that really define for him, um, you know, the idyllic American childhood and, and become characters in his book. So, I mean, it's you really can't underestimate the importance of Hannibal in his life for both um, you know, just the possibilities it showed him uh, as a town um, and the place for his family and also just for the people he met there. And they stuck okay. with him and forever. But in 1902, he went back to visit, and it was one of the most poignant moments of his life to see, you know, the people had obviously aged quite a lot, as had he, and just to see how the town, you know, had changed as well. So, um, but you asked about what the town is doing today for this. I visited Hannibal just about a year ago as I was researching this book um, and uh, it is all about Mark Twain. I mean you have a seven um, building museum which includes the boyhood home, um, the Becky Thatcher home, a reconstruction uh, of the Tom Blankenship home, a really wonderful museum that recreates the experience of what it was like to be a steamboat pilot. So you have all this and then you have the ancillary things. You have the Mark Twain Brewery. You have the Mark Twain Water Park. You have, like, the, the candy shops named after, um, you know, Mrs. Clemens Candy Shops. I mean, everybody there is all about Mark Twain. We stay just at, like, a Comfort Inn or, I don't even know, something like that, like Comfort Inn on the outside of town. And over, like, the, the um, you know, the, the check-in desk is, like, a painting of Mark Twain. So, I mean, Hannibal is all about Mark Twain. Um you know, they do big conferences there every year, uh, you know, bringing in scholars. So it's really um, it's sort of become the main business of Hannibal, in fact, um, scholars, um, you know, scholarly interest. And, and, and you said the 1902 uh, visit was a very uh, a poignant uh, moment in – uh, Sam's life, and that that that's the cover, or the photo on the cover of your 
Uh, book is it? Is it uh, yeah. Okay, that. Okay, got got that. Uh, you know the right visit there. Uh, okay, so he's what's uh, about seventy. Uh, he was born in thirty-five, so yeah, he's um. Uh, yeah, yes, uh, almost seventy. Okay. Um, yeah. And he, so you, you know, I mean, even as I, I'm not as old as that, and, and you know, I, I get melancholic looking back at my childhood. So imagine being, you know, Mark Twain and and looking back at this place that formed him so vibrantly, and and um, he knew, you know, that it would be his last visit. Um, I was talking with somebody about this the other day, like despite all this, he was all, he was no he was very savvy, right? Mark Twain or Sam mm-hmm. Clemens, whatever you want to call him. And so he, he didn't go there alone. He stopped to bring a newspaper reporter from St. Louis along with him and, and the press knew where he was. Outside of the frame of that photo on the cover, there's a you know, a gaggle of people, you know, reporters and villagers and everything wanting to talk to him. But um you know, he he probably knew that the, he, this was the last time he would ever see this place that was so important to him okay and and that that house is also part of the wait uh twain national park okay um it's a no that's a the house is the um part of the the boyhood um, museum yeah, yeah, the yeah. Hill Street. Okay, that one. Uh-huh. Yeah, so that house, which was his childhood home, it's his actual home. It's not a, a reconstruction. That was, um, that has, that is like the main sort of thing when you go to the museum there is you get to go into the house. Well, okay. Yeah, that's, that, that, that's, so what, the 1902 photo is on page 12 okay the, you know the today's photos on the next page and you're taking it the photo basically in the same spot as the 1902 photo was taken yeah so that's sort of the premise of the book is to try to show the exact same spot even from the same angle and, and time of day as much as possible to really give the reader a sense of um, what had been there before um, mm-hmm. and how it must have looked at that time. And there's another picture of it later in the book. Um, so there's an early picture and then there's a later picture in it. And that later one you can actually see, it's on page 128, you can see like the photographers all there standing around him to get a picture of the, you know the famous author at oh. his modest childhood home. All right, Derek. Yep. There it is. And and you do mention the um, characters in the neighborhood that, you know, would go on to inspire Becky Thatcher. But, you know, there was still – Aside from the, the like fun activities with um, the neighborhood kids, it, it, yeah, the, mm-hmm. there, there was like a almost like an under uh, uh, creepy undercurrent that 
seemed to have an impact on it. It, it seemed like it almost uh, created a, a, a little bit of uh, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, like, for, for example, the he tripped over a body in, yes. in his dad's office, and you, know, you do cover a little bit about it. There, there was uh, – in, in use your word – a loss of innocence. Absolutely. And, and there was and, a body and in his office, and he moved night, and he um, – yeah, he fell over a dead body. Can you imagine that? You're a kid. Um, even more upsettingly, um, you know, there were slaves in Missouri in his childhood, um, as well as, you know, escaped slaves coming through, heading north. And, and, and one of the most terrible moments of his childhood um, was seeing a body of a, a slave, you know, on, on the river as well. Really, really dark side. Of life. I mean, he saw murder in the streets one day too. So, you're, you're very to say it wasn't just the idyllic childhood. It was also uh, saw a really dark side of human nature and of America, all in that one little town. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when Cocious um, uh, v- uh co-hosted with me earlier this uh, year, and, and we were talking with. Uh, Chris Sumner from the Poe Museum, and, and we got into uh, talking a little bit about uh, how uh, traumatic events help to shape the, the creative process. Was some of these uh, like the Unfortunate events he saw with slaves and you know, the body in his dad's office. Is there an aspect of that uh, childhood trauma that seems to follow him throughout his uh, mature writings? I think so. I certainly. We very much you know idea of the young poor white boy Huck Finn trying to do what he thought was moral at the time and trying to figure out what that was to help you know an escaped slave or not I mean and that was um, you know that's probably the most obvious lesson that he learned in this town but I mean Mark Twain was a very um you know, he was born a poor Southerner with a family that, uh, you know, had people in his family had slaves, and he saw this, and he, he died a very enlightened man. I mean, he was a very progressive thinker, and and you have to think that a lot of this um, came about because of things he saw in his childhood. I mean, he was a anti-imperialist. He was a, uh, you know, he supported women's rights. He was an, an abolitionist. He was a... Um, you know, anti-vivisectionist. So he was, um, you know, these are things that you fiction writing as well as his fiction writing. Okay. It's a, so a, after 
you know, getting you know, get, getting up to about in his you know later teens, um, he has his first job in printing. He uh, was working for his brother. Eventually, goes to St. Louis. Okay, so we're we're spend a little bit of time talking about the experiences that are shaping him, and now he's getting his foot in the door with his first job, uh, uh, you know, working in publishing. Uh, how'd that go? Um, I think she's she's um, taking a short break, so hopefully she'll be calling back in. Oh, okay. She, so uh, possibly she's switching phones, or she, you know, as as so often happens when you get involved in something like this, you forget that your battery needs to be charged and stuff like that. Um, you know, you're talking about an author that that you know I I adore and. As I, I told you earlier, um, I, I don't live too far from his house in Hartford, and I did a um, I did a uh, psychic in, in, you know investigation there with a group of people, and and it was really it was fabulous to be able to walk around the rooms that Mark Twain walked in, and he you know le- lived right next door to Harriet Beecher Stowe. And so, you mm-hmm. know, I didn't go over and walk through her house, but it's certainly, it, it's, it's like you, you can actually touch history and be a part of history and, and absorb some of the energy that came from it. It was really quite profound. Um, so it was, it was a very exciting time, and, and uh, of course we didn't get any ghosts or anything, but it was still exciting. And... Uh, you know, we, we, we had our EVPs, and we were, you know, saying, you know, if anybody's there, we'd like to talk to you and all sorts of stuff like that. And, of course, nobody wanted to talk to us, which was kind of very sad. But um, his house was phenomenal. Uh, I think she's back. You back again? Hello? Can you hear me? Hi. Yep. Yeah. Hi, you, yeah no, you left me about five minutes ago, I think. Yeah, I was going to suggest you call in on your other phone because you were fading in and out on the phone you were on. Oh, okay. Um, is that possible? Is it, how, is that how, possible? how is it now? Do, I can do that. Yeah, I can call back on the other phone. Just a second. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, it, it, the every time I've tried to stop at the Twain House, it's like three in the morning, and it's, <laughs> uh, well, not, it's a huge. It's a huge house. I mean, mm-hmm. for the time, and it's on a very majestic street setting, and the property and everything is really quite. It's it's. I would say it's close to a mansion, or what I would have called a mansion during that day. And um, they have a museum attached to the house, which is quite fascinating. I think she's back again. Yeah. Hi, back yeah. again. Hello. Okay. Okay. I try sounds a different good. phone. Yeah, this sounds better to me now. Okay. okay. So, so I heard you so, were talking about Hartford. 
Yes. Oh, you, I, I, you know, I, oh. I'm very close to it. Okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah, do uh, you know, I, I think we have a little bit of ground to cover before we get to uh, Hartford, but uh, Sam gets his first job uh, being a uh, typesetter, uh, working for yeah. his brother. Um, yeah, he's kind of making a, a little bit of a name for himself, and you know, he eventually uh, starts making his way towards the East Coast. Um, right. He has some experience under his belt. Okay, what what's going on with his New York, Philadelphia, and Washington, D.C. experiences? How does that shape him? Yeah, so by the time he was 18, um, you know, little Hannibal just wasn't uh, enough. For, for Sam Clements anymore. Um, and, and unbeknownst to his brother, who owned the newspaper, Orion, he put an ad in the paper for his own replacement. Um, and he, then he left. He headed to St. Louis where the, he had a sister living, and he stayed with her a little. And he was just blown away by St. Louis when he got there. He thought it was this amazing city, but he didn't even stay in St. Louis very long. Um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, Mark Twain always had this desire to to travel and move. He couldn't sit still. And in fact, he told his mom in one letter um, from around this time period, I'm wild with impatience to move. So he just keeps moving. So he thinks St. Louis is impressive. Well, the next city he visited was, um, you know, just about the most impressive one in America at the time. It was New York city where he ends up in 1853. Um, And he just, his family realized he had moved to New York because he sent a letter home to them. Um, and, and while he was there, he, again, found work as a typesetter in New York. Um, and when he wasn't working, he just explored the city. And at this point in time, you know, New York um, is a big city, but nothing, you know, like what it is now. But it's, it's a, one of the biggest ones in America. Um, and it had nearly 600,000 people at that time. So that was, you know, from being born in a town of 100, this is pretty amazing. Um, so when mm-hmm. he's not working, he's just walking around everywhere, walking by the docks, walking around the city, walking um, spent a lot of time in theaters and, and saloons and so on. And the one thing that really blew him away was the um, Crystal Palace exhibition that was there in 1853. So he, he went to see that. He was blown away by that. But, again, he wants to keep moving. So he heads not far away next to Philadelphia. And in Philadelphia, you know, he finds the same type of, um, you know, work, too, as a typesetter. Um, and, again, he spends his time is his off work time is almost more important because he's getting out and he's seeing the world and he's seeing different types of people and he's seeing, you know, some of America's most amazing sites at the time, um, which included, of course, in Philadelphia, um, the, uh, uh, you know, famous sites of American patriots and, and so many things from American history that were there. And then also, um, you know, he saw the the Liberty Bell, of course. He saw Ben Franklin's grave, and he saw the Fairmont Waterworks, which is this kind of architectural wonder of the time. So he's in Philadelphia, and 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 you know, he just even there, you know, he's just not fulfilled. He keeps traveling, and his next um, city was one that he would become very um, familiar with throughout his life, and that's Washington D.C. By 1854, he goes there. He doesn't stay long in any place. He makes some money and gets to see the city a little. Um, you know, in, in all these sections of the book, there are 
the then and now photos, as we discussed. So he goes to Washington, D.C., um, and he sees, you know, the sites that are being worked on at the time. And and um, he never liked Washington, D.C. or politicians much in his life, but he was pretty blown away by the first time he saw it. Um, and then he decides, decides to head sort of closer back to home in 1855 because Orion had moved to a town called Keokuk, Iowa, and was working at a paper there. And he decided um, to go back um, and take a, a job with um, Orion um, in his newspaper there in Iowa. Okay. And you know, just to back up for a second, um, when – Sam is in Washington, uh, D.C. Um, he was got very interested in the uh, Pat Museum of the Patent Office, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I, I'm going to work in you know, Edison and Tesla later, but. Yeah, I I didn't realize until uh, you know when I read until I read your uh, book, like how really um, intrigued he was by all these new inventions and gadgets, and he's right there in you know the you know. America's, you know, Victorian era, seeing all these inventions happening, uh, he's really intrigued by the telephone. Oh, yeah. I mean, he was intrigued his whole life by technology, like you say. Um, You know, the character Hank and um, Connecticut Yankee and, and King Arthur's Court, I mean, um, that was sort of inspired by his um, Mark Twain's love of technology. You know, he had to be the first one in his neighborhood in Hartford to have a telephone, and and you know he wanted electricity early. But in in Washington, it was sort of his love of both technology and um, typesetting and newspapering um, that merged because he really um, what he want really was fascinated with at the Museum of the Patent Office was Benjamin Franklin's. Um, a printing press used by Benjamin Franklin in London. So um, it was, you know, a little bit of a, a very something very close to the life he had experienced that, that far. Um, and of course, printing presses and typesetting, uh, it got him into writing and it was a very important throughout his whole life because um, as I write about in the book and then most Mark Twain fans will know that he lost most of his fortune later in his life. And a large part of that was because he, invested in something called the page um, typesetter, which was uh, was supposed to be the best, you know, typesetting machine ever, but it was, it was kind of a flop. Um, he was, Sam, Samuel Clemens was never a good businessman, but he was so fascinated by this typesetting machine, um, you know, that he uh, almost became bankrupt later in his life. Okay. Well, uh, we're going to uh, return to that subject, but, you know, you're just – Wetting our whistle for mm-hmm. right <laughs> so some really neater things in the eighteen nineties that he he's going to experience, but okay, so Sam has some of these uh, is getting a 
foundation for creating his, his legacy, you know, what, uh, 20, 30 years down the road. But um, so he, he eventually gets uh, back you know, to the Midwest, and that's when he gets involved with the river boats. Uh, you know, right. How does that happen? Uh, where he's you know, back in his you know kind of like native native area. Uh, how does that career develop? Well, he. Um... So as I mentioned, after Washington, he goes back to Iowa where Orion is, and he's working there for him. Um, and, you know, it's here where he, um, you know, there's always a little bit of, like, fictionalizing going on with Mark, Mark Twain, even as far as his own life goes. But he, So the story goes is that one night he's walking down a, a snowy street in Iowa, and he finds $50, which, of course, is a fortune in 1855, and he decides that he's going to, um, you know, take this money and he is going to go to the Amazon and become a um, cocoa farmer. farmer. Um, he had heard that these plants possessed miraculous powers. But first, he needs to make a little more money, so he decides to go to Cincinnati, of all places, for a couple of reasons. Um, there was a big um, printing industry there, so he knew he could get a job, and it was a town, um, although it was in it is in Ohio, is has more of a southern feel. It's right on the river, the Ohio River. So he decides to go to Cincinnati for a while. This is one of the least documented times of his life. He didn't. He wrote some letters that were published from here and so on, but he never really um, talks too much about about Cincinnati. Um, certainly not favorably. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard the the saying um, that he said. Um, when the end of the world comes, I would like to be in Cincinnati because they're always 20 years behind the times. Um, I tell, I find that very funny because I have a lot of family in Cincinnati, but that's probably apocryphal. That's probably not something he said, but he didn't really like Cincinnati much. You can figure that out from some other things that he wrote. So anyway, he's in Cincinnati and he finally decides he has enough money. He's going to go to New Orleans and he's going to catch a, a boat down to the Amazon and he's going to become a cocoa farmer, which of course means since he wants to import co cocoa plants back to America, that he wants to become basically like a cocaine drug dealer. I mean, he didn't know this at the time, but that's in practicality, that's what that would have been. You know, Mark Twain, you know, like Scarface drug lord. Uh -huh. Anyway, he goes down, to, <laughs> he, he takes the book, you know, they didn't know these things. They just, he just knew that it had miraculous powers. Um, so he takes a riverboat, um, to, Freud to, thought um, that from too. Cincinnati. Pardon? Freud thought that too. He did, yeah. The, but he knew a little bit more about what he was doing. Mark, I think Sam Clemens was actually pretty naive about it at the time. Um, so he takes the boat, you know, down to um, all the way to New Orleans. Um, and when he gets to New Orleans, he realizes, in fact, no boats go down to the Amazon from there. And they haven't for years. He hadn't thought this no way for him to get to the Amazon. But fortunately, he already had another idea. He was never short of ideas. Um, on this boat, the Paul Jones, he had become friendly with the pilot 
a man named Horace Bixby, and he really loved riding on the riverboat. I mean, he grew up, you know, a block away from the great Mississippi, so he just loved this. Um, and he convinced Horace Bixby to take him on as a um, a cub pilot. So that's the next season where he was going through learning to become a Mississippi riverboat pilot, and then he gets his pilot's license. And this is the, probably the first really um, transformative um, time of his life because he's coming to his own, you know, as a, as a man and a man who's seeing the world again, but for his job, you know, he's going up and down the, the rivers, Vicksburg, Memphis, um, of course, New Orleans, so all around. Um, he's pretty well off. They're, the pilots, even the the Cubs were paid, you know, fairly well. And they certainly, once he got his license, he was very well paid. Um, he liked to indulge some of the high life in New Orleans, in fact, um, so he's he's really seeing the world, and, and so much of his adventures um, from this time are, of course, written about in, um, you know, Life on the Mississippi and, and then in Old Times on the Mississippi, too. So, you know, we know, like, a lot about his experiences um, at this time because of this. So um, he probably could have stayed a riverboat, or, you know, steamboat pilot his whole life, except uh, in 1861 the Civil War comes, and he is stopped um, by a blockade outside of the uh the city and that puts an end to his river boat career but the life of the rivers you know it still never leave him after and 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 that was actually a prestigious job at that time it was yes yeah and uh, okay so now mark the Civil War ends that that uh, you know phase of his life. He heads out west, and yeah, that that became a really uh, fascinating section of your book. You know, with all your you know, photos, and it, he it, sound, it sounds like the one of the culmination of his trip out west was uh going to uh having a job at a san francisco newspaper and he got sent to hawaii that really seemed to be a uh at a time when most people probably didn't leave uh home for more than uh, twenty miles. I know. It, yeah, he he he's already been to, uh, all up a uh, you know, good good portion of the eastern seaboard, and now he's going to Hawaii. Uh, that that was a really formative experience. Uh, can can you tell us a little bit about the the ship? You know, the shipwreck and all. Yeah, sure. So um, the reason he went out west was because um, his brother, Orion, um, had been appointed um, uh, governor, excuse me, by President Lincoln. Um, He had had worked for President Lincoln. And so uh, he had, uh, excuse me, been appointed, you know, to a government position in the Nevada Territory. Well, Sam didn't have anything to do, so he decides to tag along to be his 
like unofficial secretary. When he got there, he realized there wasn't really much to do and this job didn't pay anything. So um, a lot of this is written about in his book, Roughing It, years later. So he tries his hand at a lot of things. He tries to be a, a prospector because this was during the, the gold rush, of course, on one of the, the Comstock load. He didn't do too well at that. Um, he almost caused a massive fire, forest fire by Lake Tahoe when he was trying to become a logger. You, you know, so he just, he's trying to figure out what to do. And then he finds, you know, basically he strikes gold, but not in the way that he had hoped um, in a city called Virginia City because he gets a job there finally as a newspaper reporter, not just a typesetter or anything. And he starts to make him his name as a writer. Um, and then he, you know, ends up sort of, um, pretty eventful, but eventually he makes his way to San Francisco. He's doing some writing there. Um, that's the only time in his life he was actually fired from a job. He was fired from the newspaper in San Francisco. So if you ever feel bad about like losing a job or something, just remember um, Mark Twain was actually fired from a writing job. Um, so he, you know, heads, um, you know, to a place called Angel Falls, California, where he hears this great story about a jumping frog, and he writes that up, and so that sort of becomes a, uh, one of his most famous short stories. And eventually this all leads him um, to a really, really great writing assignment, one that you know any writer today would probably go for. He gets to just go over to Hawaii, which was called the Sandwich Islands at that time, for four months just to experience the culture and write about it and tell the rest of America what this exotic island area is like. So he, he takes this job. Um, the reason they were sending a writer there is because you could finally make it from California to the Sandwich Islands in um, three weeks, which was a um, impressive feat. So he goes there and he just has a great time. Um, as I said, he was there for four months and there, um, you know, he does things like he eats poi, which he really hated. He tries to learn to surf. He likes to go skinny dipping with like the native people and they really weren't too happy about that, especially the women. Um, she's really soaking up the culture, you know, seeing the volcanoes and so on. And he's sending back letters, you know, and reports. Um, and then one day in Honolulu, towards the end of his stay, um, uh, the survivors of a terrible shipwreck, of a ship called the Hornet, a clipper ship, um, wash up on shore. Of course, he's the only newspaper reporter, you know, there from the mainland. And he interviews these survivors. And um, this becomes a sensation across America. And really, um, the jumping frog kind of put him on the map, but this really puts him on the, on the sort of like um, writing map of, of continental America in a pretty big way. And this is 1866. Okay, and it, you have some great photos of the Honolulu Harbor and the contemporary with Twain's visit in the 1860s and what it looks like today. Uh, uh, other than uh, the mountains in the background, um, that hasn't changed, but the uh, uh, harbor. Know, really has, and that's like you know, really a dramatic standout in your book. Oh, yeah. Of uh, what things were like uh, was it 150 years ago and now. To, yeah, it really like was it, a different world at that time, especially there. I right. Mean, it was 
um, so, so different. I can't imagine what it's like, you know, to have just been an American living, you know, in, I don't know, Philadelphia or New York or Hannibal. There must have been something that was just so, so exotic. I mean, even today it's exotic, right? And I'm, I'm a Clevelander and I went to Hawaii once. And I was like, oh, my God, this is the most amazing, beautiful, interesting place I've ever seen. It's a, but it, it was actually this uh, experience of you know uh, the survivors uh, washing ashore and you know, Sam's writing the let you know, sending the uh, you know, reports uh, back to San Francisco. Right. That. that actually is kind of getting him started on his lecture circuit or the uh, lecture circuit and that that would uh, maybe a lot of people don't realize that he he didn't become very wealthy just from you know the publication of Huckleberry Finn and you know success of other books he, he was actually uh uh, a, a, a very well-respected uh, speaker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, before he was a famous writer, he was um, a very famous speaker. I mean, um, after his um, mentor, Artemis Ward, maybe, you know, the most famous sort of literary speaker. So, yes, you're right. Um, his Sandwich Islands lecture, which he started delivering on the West Coast, um, really became a sensation and this is what drives him back to the east coast the center of literary america again you know the chance to deliver this um sandwich island islands lecture out there um in places you know like the cooper Cooper institute so he's he's really becoming um a sought after name and he was always really Mm -hmm. worried about these early lectures but they, they usually did very well but he would do things like you know give away free tickets um like plant people who would be guaranteed to applause, you know, in the audience and so on. Um, but, you know, this really sort of spreads, you know, his um, reputation. It keeps growing and growing thanks to these lectures. Yeah, and so by the time you know, he, he wraps up everything on uh, the West Coast, he heads back east, and, it, you know, he's you know, on the lecture circuits in in New England, and yeah, he he starts. Uh, uh, you tell us that he's um, becomes friends with uh, Reverend uh, Beecher. Yeah. Um, you know, that leads to a, a trip to. The Holy Land, mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, but the, yeah, the nice thing about your book, Mark Twain's America, is that you're giving us all, all these photos of you know, where Reverend Beecher's uh, church it was located, and it's it's still there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Pilgrim uh, Congregational Church. I'm sorry, Plymouth Congregational Church. Yep, and 
you know, page 66. But, you know, it, it's it, through the, the, the lecture circuit that uh, Sam's making a name for himself. And, you know, Dickens was doing the same thing uh, you know, about, about the same time. You know, he, he, uh, Dickens would uh, pass away in just a, a couple years from this uh, late 1860s uh, time period. But it's, you know, when Sam meets um, Reverend Beecher, and there's uh, kind of foreshadows all all these other very prominent uh, politicians and entertainers. uh, We'll get to that, but it's really astounding how, how you've demonstrated how uh, Sam has gone from you know really you know, very humble beginnings to the, all these experiences really shaping him for the the person we know today, or you know we kind of know, but uh, yeah. He's misunderstood in in some some circles, but he's this. You do a, a, a terrific job explaining all, all of this. I I just really did did not know that much about uh, Twain. Uh, you know Twain's career. No, well, well, thank you. I mean, it was um, it was really fascinating to dig into the, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. his story through these places and sort of look up, you know, for example, like the the, the history of Plymouth Congregational Church, you know, Reverend Beecher's church and so on. Um, and, you know, just to – and one reason – one way I did a lot of the research was looking through old newspaper articles of the time, like reviews of his lectures and advertisements for the, you know, the um, – um, Samuel Clemens, Mark Twain lectures, and and that really sort of gave a sense of um, how he was growing in popularity with these lectures. Like I found an old ad that was from um, the, his first appearance in Cleveland, 1868, so not long after this um, time period we're talking about, where it said, you know, like everybody is going rich and poor, you know, so on. And it was like a it was a really big deal, like very early in his his lecture career when Mark Twain was coming to town. I mean, that was the hot ticket. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Barbara, we'll have to do that with nightlight. Take that, do, do a road show. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> Take that advertisement. <laughs> I could send you, I could actually send you one or two of the ads to look at the, the, um, oh, the cool. it's pretty funny just to see all the, you know, exclamation points and the, the highfalutin language that they use, but um, it really does give you a sense of, of you know, it was like um, he was sort of the rock star of his day, you know, from very early on. I mean, this was the hot ticket in town, and years later when he came back to America after having been abroad for the good part of a decade, um, 
you know, I said something in the book, like, it wasn't again until the Beatles came to New York in 1964 that there was so much excitement. I mean, there was like a thousand people in the New York Harbor for him to arrive. He really, he was, he was like a genuine, you know, rock star before there was such a thing. Yeah, but but that was really the only form of entertainment. Exactly, yeah. And, I mean, probably and, you know, Charles he, Dickens was obviously a little bit big, maybe a little bit bigger. Um, in fact, he he um, on what probably could be described of as his first date with his future wife, um, Livy. Um, they went to see Charles Dickens on New Year's Eve in, in New York City, but that and that was like a big deal. Her family had gotten tickets to Charles Dickens. They were a very wealthy family, but yeah, I mean, reading at home or going out to see lectures if you were in a city and you were lucky enough to. Um, you have an exciting speaker coming to your town. That that was what you did. Yeah, and if you lived in a major city, uh, you know, like Philadelphia, and you had the Peel Museum, <clears throat> or you know, parts of it, you know, uh, you know, it survived, and you, you had the Barnum Museum, but uh, you know. You know the circus would uh, come later, but you know there right. really wasn't a whole lot of entertainment at that time. And uh, uh, Sam must have been a really captivating speaker to be able to like fifteen hundred seat auditoriums. Oh yeah, and there were times when he was playing to four thousand, you know, a seat um, places. Um, so yeah, I mean, to imagine that just entertaining with your, um, you know, there's no props or anything. There's just there's just you telling your telling your stories. Yeah, yeah. and oh, okay. So it, and Sam, Sam, you know, makes a lot of money. Um, Yeah, he has you know a few uh, successful books under his belt, and mm-hmm. he 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 moves up the street from Barbara in Hartford. <laughs> so what? Yeah, this you know, your photos of the Hartford house. Uh, you know that's still standing. Yeah. Uh, it, it, you know the uh, Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship uh, uh, you know, group. Uh, you know we helped to promote back in what September. You know, they held their annual conference. At the Hartford, uh, Twain Hartford uh, House, uh, was it second week of October? So you know we have a little experience dealing uh, with the, you know the, this historic house, but it, you know you also have many photos of just how elaborate. It is, uh, you know, 
pool table. It's like they they spared no expense in building this dream house. No, they didn't. And the dream house is a great way to put it because, you know, we were talking about Sam's home in Hannibal before, like how important that was in his formation. Like home was very important to him. He loved to travel, but to have a home to come back to is really very important. Um, It grounded him. And so that, you know, Hannibal was his childhood home. And this was the home where he raised his family, the house in Hartford. Um, and he, by the time he built it, he was a very successful um, author at that point. And also his wife had come into a large inheritance. She was a wealthy woman. And they spared no expense. I mean, he was a great thinker and writer, but he was also a real, like, you know, bon vivant. And he loved to he loved to enjoy life. Um, and, um, you know, there was gorgeous parlors, and, and they were known for their entertaining. You know, they had these big public spaces. Um and not only did they spare no expense when they built it, about five years later they had Louis Comfort Tiffany come in and basically completely redecorate everything because they had never really been happy with the decorations. So, um, you know, that was certainly not a major contributor, but it was a contributor to his financial problems, just the amount of money that he, you know, spent on, on things like that. I mean, as I mentioned they were legendary for their parties. We're getting close to Christmas now. They were really well known for their their Christmas parties. He loved Christmas. Um, he would dress up as Santa. He would write a you know really detailed letters to his uh, three daughters. He had four children. Um, three survived to adulthood. His son died an infant, um, and he would write these letters to his daughters. You know who, and he he really the, he would say many, many times later that the time in Hartford was the happiest time in, in his life when his daughters were young. He was a successful writer, you know, he you know, he was just um he he, he lived a great life there and he, he was um you know, family was so important to him and this is where his family was the happiest. And some of my favorite pictures in the book are of him and his, you know, daughters with the the dog just kind of hanging out there and um you can just get a sense of I mean, there obviously later in life there was friction between some of the the girls and him, but you can just get a sense of of what love he had for his um, his children. And, and you know, one of the interesting points is what about ten years after writing the the Gilded Age. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like becoming the same thing. He he was satirized in like one of his first uh, novels, but you know, he also used his uh, wealth to benefit a lot of other people, and you have the uh, sample of. Uh, Warner uh, McGuinn, right from from the the Yale. Can can you uh, tell us a little bit about? Yeah, so he he was very so he was um he wasn't showy about it, but he was very um very generous and and philanthropic, and in you know kind of like unusual ways for his time. Um, As I mentioned. you know, he grew up in a time in the South when when slavery was still around. So he had he saw the terrible way that um, 
you know, blacks were treated in America. And later in his life, he figured pretty prominently in the role of a a man who became a very prominent African-American attorney. Um, He met him when he went to Yale. Um, His name was Warner McGuinn, and um, he was a, a, a brilliant student there. And he, uh, so Samuel Clemens was going there to give a talk and he was the one who was taking him around and, um, you know, sort of showing him the school and so on. And he was so impressed by Warner McGuinn because not only was he a great student and very active in the student body, he was working several jobs to put his way through college at the time. He was one of the first um, black students there. And he was just so impressed by him um, and sort of touched by the fact he was working as a waiter, a hat checker, a bill collector, doing all this stuff, that he went to the, unbeknownst to um, Mr. McGuinn, he went to the school, the dean of the law school, and said he would like to pay his tuition um, as well as his living expenses for the rest of his college career. And I think that what he wrote to the dean is really, um, it's worth reading. He said, I do not believe I would have cheerfully helped very cheerfully help a white student who would ask a benevolence of a stranger, but I do not feel so about the other color. We have ground the manhood out of them, and the shame is ours, not theirs, and we should pay for it. I mean, that's something that is so relevant to even, you know, it's in 2019 America, this um, this idea of, of, you know, this white man feeling that he he, he was complicit, you know, in, in the, the way that this um, African-American had been treated and trying to make, you know, reparations for that. And, um, you know, but he wasn't the only person he helped. He he helped um, Helen Keller. Uh, a lot of people don't know mm-hmm. that, the famous, um, you know, blind, deaf, and dumb American girl. Um, he was just, he was very charitable. He helped many, um, you know, many people over the years, even when he, you know, he himself was, you know, from all Outward appearances, he was doing well, but he wasn't necessarily financially doing well all those years. But, but, it, what, but you know, with the you know, wealthy celebrity status he had, living in a um, exclusive neighborhood in a. Uh, prominent East Coast town uh, like Hartford um, it gave him access to uh, many other leading uh, celebrities uh, right. of the time period and you know, early, earlier in the show we were talking about uh, Sam's interest in gadgets and technology, and where's mm-hmm. uh, the page um, where you have the couple photos of Sam in Tesla's lab? Uh-huh. Like the and you know, Barbara's had Tim Swartz on oh, there. It is on page one eighteen. Uh, Tim Swartz was on talking about his uh, book on Tesla, but you know, I think a, a, a lot of people may not realize that. And you know, I think a, a, a lot of late night radio uh, listeners are probably more uh, intrigued by 
and inspired by Tesla than Edison? Well, there's certainly been a rise in interest in Tesla um, in the last few years, too. I think he was, um, his sort of genius was not appreciated as it should be. Um, He came up, you know, with the alternating current. Um, He was like a a real character, too. I mean, he did so many things. He he was a genius in so many ways. But he also, he lived in New York, um, and he met um, Mark Twain, you know, through New York. And, um Mark Twain was fascinated with what he was doing, um, you know, and would go over to his laboratory, which tragically burned down, taking years' worth of notes and work with it um, at one point. Um, You know, Mark Twain liked Edison, too. Obviously, Tesla and Edison is a very famous and bitter rivalry between the two. But, um, you know, I chose to feature his relationship with Tesla in the book. There's some great pictures of him in the laboratory. Um, uh, he actually sought out medical help from Tesla. Um, at one point, he thought he would help him with his like stomach ailments if he had the kind of current currents run through him. Kind of hard to describe, um, but but basically, sort of all it made him do is like he really had to go to the bathroom very badly. So he said, like he said a couple weeks later, like oh, actually, I do feel better. So okay, yeah, uh, he was thinking just, outside uh, the box. Yeah. Yeah, and it's kind of backfired, but uh, yeah, it, <laughs> it 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 does sound like that. Yeah, trying that you know outside the box thinking you know is, is typical of Mark Twain, but yeah, you know, there's you know. I've, you know, done, done another show where uh, it, it, what prompted uh, it, it intrigued me about this uh, section of your book. You know, this is 1894, and um, I did another show uh, a few four or five years ago about. Um, um, L. Frank Baum and you know, the writing of the Wizard of Oz and uh, Tesla was at the 1893 Chicago World's Fair so that's you know, only a year uh, prior to these photos uh, being taken and Tesla had his uh, displays going on for the uh, length of the fair, and L. Frank Baum, the author of the Wizard of Oz series, uh, was also at that uh, fair. Um, in in Chicago, is I've always j- just been intrigued by um, that event. Did, are are you aware of any uh, connection between uh, Tesla and Baum or 
seen anything about uh, Frank getting some ideas for you know, some of the sci-fi type imagery used in the Wizard of Oz series. That's a little side, you know, personal yeah, interest no, thing. Actually, I don't, know, I don't know anything about that. That's very interesting. Um, yeah, I, it, it, it just, it, it, it's just like, it, it, like within this, you know, 1893, 1894 time period, you, you have two uh, very prominent authors having like, like some kind of connection to Tesla. I, I, I just, I, I'm just throwing that out there. I just. I, I, I'm just intrigued by it. I don't know. Um, actually, my husband is uh, Serbian American, like Nikola Tesla, and he's hugely um, popular in the Serbian community. And there's actually a, a museum to him in Belgrade, which a lot of our friends have gone to. So maybe I'll ask around a little bit. Maybe they've they've yeah, put something on. about that in the museum. Yeah, call. call. Call them up. We still have a little bit more time left. Yeah. <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, I, I was just I, that, that. That's just like a little personal interest. I didn't mean to put you on the spot, but I, it's really very intriguing. And yeah, I, I, I don't know. It's, you know there's. Yeah, I mean, Nikola Tesla is so such a fascinating um, character, and that time frame is just so. Um, you know, so interesting. I don't know, you know, about the L. Frank Baum thing, but um, he's certainly very interested in in technology and things like that. So maybe. Yeah, there. Yeah, you know, there's someone's, uh, you know, doctoral thesis idea yeah. form. I'm sure. Maybe somebody already has done it. We'll just have to dig around. Yeah. <laughs> but it, okay, so. Yeah. You know, we have Twain at the what, height of his career. Um, you know, he he go. You know, you, you, you touched on uh, the bankruptcy or earlier, uh, he, but he he did manage to pull himself out of that situation uh, uh, how how did he do that um well he did that in a couple of ways um he had one um man who became one of the most um important friends in his his later years h h um, Rogers, who was from Standard Oil, um, became his sort of main uh, financial advisor and really helped him get out of a lot of bad situations because he lost money um, through his publishing company, Charles Webster, through the page typesetter and then just through, you know, basically overspending. Um, and H.H. H. Rogers kind of got his affairs in order um, but in, in helped him really importantly, the probably the most important thing he did is helped him retain the copyright on all of his writing but but sam was bankrupt and he needed to still make this money back so this is such a weird thing to think about these days so the family decided to move to europe because it was much cheaper to live in europe than it was in america so they traveled around europe for the good 
better part of a decade. I mean, he would make many trips back to do book tours and to deal with business. But for the most part, the family lived in Europe um, for the 1890s because that was much more affordable. Um, so that saved money. And just by he had really, you know, he was, he was older then. He had gout and he wasn't feeling that well. And, and um, But he had not wanted to go back on the lecture tour circuit. But he realized that that was the, that was really the only thing he could do. He knew he could make a lot of money by doing that. In fact, he did. He toured um, the whole world, you know, in the 1890s, giving speeches, you know, from Australia through Europe and everywhere around America and Canada. And, and he, he um, you know, he made his money. He made back his money. He, he became a, a wealthy um, man again, paid off all his debts. And as I said, he kept his, his copyright. So he was able to, keep making money on the the books as well at that time. And, and you know, around this, you know, these difficult times, uh, a little bit before, but uh, in the late 1880s, <clears throat> 1890s, um, he publishes Huck Finn, uh, but he's also getting started with his own publishing company and and th- that company what uh, published Huck Finn and then their second book that they were getting out was uh, the memoirs of uh, President Grant right and yeah, you know, a lot of people may not realize that th- there was su- such a personal connection between those two. Th- th- you know, great friends, and uh, you know, Twain was there to ha- help. You know, General Grant. Um, through this his death can you tell us a little bit about that friendship yeah so he had met he had met U.S. Grant um, a couple of times over the years and um, you know Ulysses S. Grant was a, you know, a giant in American history right I mean right. so important what he did for the Union and um, you know, he decided he wanted to write his his memoirs. Um, coincidentally, he was dying of cancer at the same time, um, and Mark Twain sa- thought he was getting a bad deal with the uh, the person who had offered to publish it. So he said he would publish it. And this, in fact, was by far the most successful book he published because um, these books were sold door to door to um, American. Um, veterans and men and just think about it every man in america was touched by the civil war and women too i mean but the men were the soldiers the women were the ones who you know did everything else in that time period so this book was sold door to door across america so probably every just about everyone in america wanted a copy it was a a huge bestseller when it did finally come out um right at the time that that u.s grant actually um ended up dying but he completed the book um, Charles Webster, uh, which was Mark Twain's company, published it um, 
uh, and he gave him an extremely fair deal, more royalties than you know anybody else would have done. And in fact, when he died, he made sure that his wife um, uh, got you know um, was really very well taken care of and got all of her royalties. Um, he wrote you know an enormous check to her um, because you know they, they were friends more than anything. They were friends. Um, you know, Mark Twain had spoken at a dinner for him in Chicago at a big, um, you know, Grand Army of the Republic celebration. Um, so this was, you know, a book that he felt should come out. And, and the idea of that some publisher would kind of try to rip off, you know, Ulysses S. Grant um, really was very wrong to him. Um, and he, he didn't really, he personally didn't profit hugely off of this. He did this so that, that U.S. Grant, who was dying, could have uh, – you know, something for his family because he, like uh, Mark Twain, he also had been a very bad businessman and lost a lot of his fortune. You know, that, uh, that, that was, you just have a feeling that th- those two were really mismatched. You know, Twain was more of a uh, southerner. Um, right. It, 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 um, Twain hated politics and, and was disgusted by being in Washington. But um, it, 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 he was able to put aside differences, and you know, he, he was, you know, really close friends with. Uh, President Grant. I, it's r- really a neat story. And, yeah, I think you know, actually really... saw him as an honest politician. I mean, it's it's weird to think about because Grant's administration was, um, you know, kind of plagued with issues and corruption, um, not of his doing, but you know, in his administration, um, he was mm-hmm. much better, probably like fighter, and, and he was a much better leader of men in, in the battlefield and. Than he was, you know, of politicians in Washington D.C. So I think Mark Twain thought of him, though, as an honest, personally a very honest, upright, moral um, person who made big sacrifices and who was really loved by his men, you know, the men who fought for him. And um, I also wonder too, because you know, sort of the most uh, problematic time of Mark Twain's life, I think, is during the Civil War because he, you know, he fled. I mean, he didn't. He didn't choose sides. I mean, thankfully, he didn't choose, you know, um, to to fight in the cause of, of um, you know, slavery or the Confederacy like many Missourians did. But he didn't join the Union either. He he took kind of the easy way out. He fled to the West Coast with his brother, who was clearly a, a supporter of President Lincoln. Um, you know, and when you think about that, like sort of him fleeing, and it's like a little bit um, – like I said, a little bit, you know, problematic to think about. So I always, I also kind of wonder if maybe this in some way was his kind of like making amends for his own sort of lack of, of really taking mm. a role during the Civil War. Okay. Well, uh, that makes uh, sense. I mean, it's just okay. purely, you know, speculation. I, but I, I often wondered later because he was um, – as we were talking about a little bit earlier, such a progressive thinker, um, but but you know, uh, he probably would have been a terrible soldier. He did have a, a about a twenty-four hour, like a very brief foray into fighting in a militia in Hannibal, and it, it like ended 
almost in a comedically bad way. So he probably wouldn't have been been a good fighter either. Okay, you know, at least uh, he wasn't killed, and yeah, exactly. we have his le- like so many other legacy. men were on either side. You know, yes, such a incredible tragedy. Yeah, but um, so and, and you know we're kind of winding things down here, but you know there are um still many homes left to visit. Uh, you know, you know we've talked about the Hartford one. There, there is. The Twain family grave site, the um, oh, um, uh, study, some of the other, uh, the Hudson Valley, a uh, Wave Hill house. Uh, you know, those are still uh, standing structures. Uh, you know, you're. Uh, Obviously, a well, the boyhood home is still still there. Uh, but you know, when you're going to photograph all all these places, uh, so some are open to the public. Uh, what about some of the other ones? Or, or do you have to get uh, permission to photograph the house? Um. Well, fortunately, I did not take the pictures. I wrote the text, and I helped find the vintage pictures. But professional photographers took the pictures, so it looked much better than if I had done it. Um, So so what happened was the publishers sort of worked with photographers in each city to – because, you know, there's so many places. There's 69 places. So they worked with photographers in each city to um, take those photos. and I think they look really good. I mean, they hired a lot of really, mm-hmm. uh, they're all professional photographers, newspaper photographers, book photographers, and so on. Um, but, you, you know, you do not need permission to take a picture of a place. Like if you're standing on the street, that place is a public, I mean, if, even if it's a private place, it's visible to you while you're in the public, you know. So, um, you know, that's I, that's something I know also from my work, you know, at, at a newspaper, um, you know, even uh, – Anything so that's sort of visible in the public, you can take pictures of. Now, of course, these are all places that probably that are open to the public. So, of course, they probably like to have their picture taken, and you know, they have no problem with that being included in somewhere. To go inside, though, of course, to go into that private space, you do need um, permission. Um, but you know, obviously, the museums and the, the historical societies and something they welcome attention because it helps further their mission as well. Okay, and uh, people can visit the uh, Mark Twain grave site? Yes, you can do that. As well. Okay. Yeah, um, the one oh, I should mention that the one place that's not public um, is um, the uh, place um, Quarry Hill um, outside of Elmira. That is just open. That was Mark Twain's kind of writing retreat. It had been a property of his father-in-law and then his sister-in-law, and that is um, used today just for, um, it's like the Center for Mark Twain Studies, so it's used for scholars and researchers and people like that. It's not open um, for public visitors. Okay. 
And but you do get to see what it looks like in the book because we have pictures. Right. Okay. And the um, family plot is in <clears throat> Elmira, New York. Right. Okay. And so, oh, go go ahead. No, I was gonna say so you can you know you can you can see that. Um, I actually have not. Um, seen Mark Twain's grave, but that we do have the picture. Um and his mm-hmm. daughter Clara had a had a um um you know monument put up to him. But it's a very modest grave. The, his grave is just the same modest grave as the rest of his family has there. Okay. And you know we uh, really haven't spoken a whole lot about uh his uh you know, Olivia, his wife, and his uh, daughters. Uh, that was, you know, want to touch on them too. Uh, you said the Hartford um, time was the highlight of his life. How were things in the family afterwards? Well, he and his family had a lot of tragedy. Um, as I mentioned, he had a son who died as an infant. Um, Livy, they had a very strong marriage, but she was, um, you know, pretty much an invalid most of her life. It's kind of unclear what was wrong with her. Um, she did travel about and so on, but she often had health problems. Um, his daughter, Jean, had um, epilepsy, which plagued her her whole life, and she ended up dying um uh, Christmas Eve one year she drowned in the tub due to her ep- epilepsy um, uh, in her 20s. Susie, his, probably his favorite daughter, he often said, um, died really tragically. She stayed behind when the rest of the family had gone over to Europe on one of their tours in the 1890s, and she was going to, to eventually meet up with them, and she got um, very sick, and she died suddenly. Uh, in her 20s at home without um, any of her family being able to come see her. It happened so quickly. Um, You know, so he had lost two daughters at a pretty young age. The only child that he had who outlived him was his daughter Clara, um, who actually got married kind of like late in life, and she was pregnant when he died, um, but he never lived to see his, his grandchild ever, and he really, like, loved children so much. And his wife, Libby, okay. had died in 1904, so she had died um, six years before him. Okay. And you know, maybe we can kind of segue a little bit from, you know, you know the death theme, uh, you know, his house in New York City is supposedly haunted. Yes, the one in the um, West 10th Street, you mean? Yes, yes. Yes. Yeah, that is supposedly haunted. Um, That's what people say. Um, It had a terrible event happen in that house years later. Um, I remember seeing this on the news as a child, there was a um, terrible um, case of child abuse that took place 
um, it kind of became a cause celeb um, in, you know, in America at the time. Um, And, um, you know, but it was said to be haunted even before that. Um, And, uh, you know, I don't know. I haven't obviously been there and experienced anything like that myself, but Mark Twain was, you know, kind of a believer in things like that. So you never know. Okay. Well, it's just interesting that supposedly the later tenants saw Sam's yeah, they ghost. saw something there. They said, "Yeah, it, they it, saw interesting some kind thing. of a figure or something." Okay, well, it, it, um, you know, it just kind of t- ties in with uh, Tuesday's show of maybe that was a r- residual haunting. But you know, since yeah. we're talking about uh, um, homes. We also need to talk about one of the uh, most prominent homes in Cleveland. It's you know you're covering that on a annual basis. It's the yes okay. house yeah used in the the movie the Christmas Story. That's probably going to be playing 24 hours a day for the next three weeks. Um, can can you tell us a little bit about the Christmas Story house and is yeah. the the leg lamp still in the window? <laughs> yeah, so one of the biggest tourist destinations in Cleveland all year long, but especially this time of year, has become the Parker Family House on West 11th Street, also known as the Christmas Story House, because this is the house that was featured in the 1983 um, uh, Christmas classic. I won't even say cult classic because I think it's beyond cult status. Uh, Christmas classic, A Christmas Story. Um, it's supposed to be Hammond, Indiana, but it's, it's, it was filmed. Um, exteriors and some interiors were filmed at this house in Cleveland. There was some work done on a soundstage in um, Canada as well, for some of the interiors as well as some of the school scenes and so on. So, um, this house is just down like a regular residential, you know, working class street in an area called Tremont. Um, and it came up for sale a little more than a decade ago. Just people living in there. Um, in 1983, what had happened was the producers of this film, which was directed by Bob Clark, previously best known for Porky's, they were driving around Cleveland, which is going <laughs> to fill in as Hammond. And they wanted a house that was, you know, look like it was from the right era because the Christmas story is set in 1939. Um, they wanted a house that was near a steel mill because there supposedly were steel mills around Gene Shepard's house in Hammond. And the movie's based on his memoir. So they found this house, and it's right at the end of a street. Uh, it would be a great location for filming because it's sort of like a U-shaped thing where it's, it's at an intersection, actually, crossroads. And they thought this house had the right look. You could see the steel mill in the backyard. It's just what they envisioned. So they, you know, went to the door, actually, and they, they um, told the owner, hey, can we film a movie here? And, of course, at the time, nobody knew this movie was going to be as successful as it was. And and they were like, yeah, sure. The guys, I think they gave him 20 some thousand dollars which, you know, 1983 was more than today. And he got to stay in the really nice hotel in downtown Cleveland called the Hotel um, Renaissance, or it was called Stouffer's at the time, but a really nice, beautiful, 100-year-old hotel. 
So they filmed it there. Um, unfortunately, although this was in very cold winter, it was filmed in March of 1983, and it came out in the end of the year 1983. There was no snow in Cleveland then. So they had to have the fire department come and kind of freeze stuff around there to give it that icy look, and they had to use thousands and thousands and thousands of potato flakes. You know, when you make um, – uh, like mashed potatoes from like potato flakes to make it look like snow. Yeah. <laughs> so they filmed, you know, like a lot of the movie here. And uh, there's some great stories about the filming still. Um, for example, there's a bar that dates back to 1906 across the street called the Rally Inn. It's still there. Darren McGavin, the man who played the, old, the great actor who played the old man in the movie, was said to shut down the bar almost every single night. You know, he loved to go hang out there. Um, they used the top floor of the bar for a lot of the staging for the movie. So anyway, flash forward from 1983 to about 2004, um, it's been still been the same owner in the house, um, and there was like a death in that family, and the house went up for sale, and this man named Brian Jones um, from Florida was a huge fan of the movie, and he saw that it was for sale online, and he bought the house with the intention of making it a museum. Um, just on his own. It's not a nonprofit or anything. This guy's poured his money into it. Um, he was previously already selling leg lamps. That shows you what a big fan he is. So he bought the house and he <laughs> completely restored it inside to how it would have looked in to how it looks in scenes in the movie, as well as just you know rounding it out with 1939-ish period pieces. You know, you can so you go in the house and there's the box that says Fragile, and there's a leg lamp in the box there. There's also a leg lamp in the window, one of the most popular um, photographic destinations in Cleveland. Um, the Christmas tree is there with the red rider and the, the big blue bowling ball. Um, you go upstairs, and you can go in the bathroom, and you can um, – uh, I don't recommend doing this because it probably has tons of germs from other people in it, but you can put some of that light boy soap in your mouth. Um, or maybe the soap kills all the other germs. I don't know. Um, you can see Ralphie and Randy's bedroom, you know. Um, and I really like to see that because you don't see their bedrooms too much in the movie. So they've really done a nice job of kind of like fleshing it out with what they imagined like a 1939 boys' bedroom would be like Wizard of Oz posters and Flash Gordon posters and comic books from the time and everything. So it's, to me, it's a really touching experience because. Is this one man who loved the movie had a dream, and it's this kind of like DIY homespun, um, you know, house that you can go into. Um, the time between Thanksgiving and the end of the year, you just go on, you just you pay to go in. It's this a fairly low price. I can't remember. I think it's between ten and thirteen dollars. You just go in on your own. The rest of the year they do guided tours, but there's just so many people there this time of year they can't do that. Um, I did take a guided tour uh, before Thanksgiving, and it, it's just so interesting because you learn things. I don't know how familiar people are with the movie, but there's a, um, the department store scene where the crazy mean Santa and Elf are was filmed at a very famous Cleveland department store named Higby's, which you can see the name Higby's in the movie pretty prominently. It's down on our public square. And um, that's actually the reason – I learned this on the tour years ago. That's actually the reason the movie came here. It's because – Bob Clark and the producers of the movie sent more than 150 letters to department stores nationwide saying, we want to make this movie 
uh, in February and March, and we want you to leave up all your Christmas decorations and let us film all night in your store. And Higby's was the only one that got back and said yes. So thanks to Higby's, you know, we had this production come here. Um, Higby's did have one caveat. They said they didn't want to be in an R-rated movie because, you know, like I mentioned, Bob Clark had done Porky's before. Um, so they said they didn't want any swearing in it. And so the story goes that that's the reason um, the father um, says, and Ralphie say, oh, fudge, and things like that, which I think really adds to the sort of the vintage ambiance of the film, in fact. Okay, is there a uh, pink bunny costume hanging in the closet? Um, no, but there's actually on the lot next door, there's about a 20-foot-tall pink inflatable um, Ralphie in his pink nightmare costume. And if you go across the street to the gift shop, there's a wall of those things that you can buy. I think they're about $100 if you want that. Um, yes. It's become such a cottage industry in Cleveland, actually. Um, there's a this weekend. There's a big 5K and 10K race. You'll see people running, like you know, five kilometers, 10 kilometers, wearing those pajamas. And and there's a really great bakery called Jack Frost Donuts that creates pink nightmare donuts. And I mean, it's just it's a, it's a pretty big deal here these days. Um, we've got a <laughs> stage version of it. We have a musical version of it. You know, there's a a Great Lakes Brewing Company does a beer called Triple Dog Dairy. I mean, a candy company does something <laughs> called Oh Fudge Fudge. I mean, it's just, if you come to Cleveland, right, we'll take you around and show you all the Christmas story uh, things you can imagine. Okay. Okay. That, uh, that kind of sounds like a setup for uh, next year. I'll end up being in the uh, uh, bunny marathon <laughs> costume race. <laughs> And you can have okay. some triple dog beer at the end. Yeah, there we go. Uh, okay, well, you know, Barbara, we'll have to make a road trip to Cleveland next year for get get some photos of this. Uh, well, well, you can do the race, and I'll drink the beer. Okay, <laughs> I'll stay with Barbara and drink the beer and eat the donuts while you run. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll, yeah. We'll. Yeah. We'll. We'll get the subscribers up. Yeah. You, you have to. Subscribe to see see the photos of me and the uh, doing the race, but okay, we'll we'll talk about that in the, uh, next year. <laughs> but uh, so it, it it just sounds like that northern Ohio area has been really good for the uh, film industry. You know, Mark was. Uh, I guess with us, you know, a few months ago, uh, for the, the second time covering his uh, uh, publication of his uh, Shawshank Redemption book, and you know that's right. not not all that far from uh, you either. And you know, you've given us you know some really great behind the scenes uh, look at how the uh, community you know has remained involved with. Uh, promoting the legacy of uh, both of those uh, beloved movies. Yeah. I actually looked up the reviews of A Christmas Story when it first came out the other day um, uh, and from 1983 in both The Plain Dealer where I work as well as other papers and they were like really not positive reviews. I think the only paper that gave it a good review at the time 
with the Boston Globe. Um, so it was interesting to see how like, the people knew something that the critics didn't, that it really touched, I think, something in Cleveland, uh, not Cleveland, but nationwide. You know, people sort of like were pulled in by the kind of innocence and charm and nostalgia of that movie and the humor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, you know, Mark brought that up as well. Uh, that, you know, the Shawshank Redemption really, uh, took a while to catch on and, and, you know, was nominated for Academy Awards, but, you know, that kind of came later, but, uh, you know, like, it was TCM, um, actually helped to turn it into the mainstay it is now a a couple years later with their their marathons Mm -hmm. you know so you know you you have two great movies filmed very near each other okay and so when people are done visiting Higby's and having O Fudge beer and the Christmas story house. Yeah, you know, there there you know, you've also covered um uh, paranormal uh, places in, in the Cleveland area as well. Um it, I like the you know, little review you did of the uh, Fair, Fairpoint Harbor Lighthouse. Uh, lighthouses are yeah, haunted uh, by cats. Yeah, yeah, interesting in the first place. But after uh, uh, you get out of the uh, Christmas Story uh, area on you said Eleventh Street. Uh, how, how do you get to the uh, Fairpoint Harbor Lighthouse? That's actually um, pretty far. That's, I would say, about a 45-minute drive or so east of Cleveland along the lake. Okay. Um, but it's worth a trip up there. It's very beautiful. And, and um, I didn't – I took a tour of it, and I went out there, and I didn't see a ghost cat, but I did see a cat just lurking around. So I wondered if that – you know, meant anything. And I've talked to so many people who've seen that ghostly cat out there that, um, you know, something to think about. It certainly um, has so many sightings that makes you think. Okay. And there's also uh, the Gray's Armory. Yeah. And that and and that was is, you know people who uh, listen to Tuesday's show. You know, I was just kind of interest, interested in that subject. Where uh, yeah, that was more of a uh, speakeasy, and you know, like the, the the late you know this uh, armory has their um, <clears throat> lady in white. Uh, yes. It seems like maybe she's just kind of stuck in place. I, you know that um, that was an interesting aspect from Tuesday show. Is you know you understand 
someone who just kind of is just doesn't want to leave a place and then you get uh, people from uh, uh, distant places that uh, for some reason end up uh, stuck uh, in, inside a house that it seems like they really have no connection being there. I, I think that's a fascinating subject. But um, anyhow, this uh, arm, armory has a couple different uh, periods where ghosts uh, seem to be representing them. Uh, can you tell us a little bit uh, about that in the you know, next uh over the next seven, eight minutes we have left in the show? Yeah, so the armory is one of the oldest still standing buildings in Cleveland. Um, and it was, in fact, a, an armory. Um, it looks like a, a castle. It's a very imposing kind of turreted building, and it's right downtown, really right around the corner from where the Indians and, and the Cavaliers play. Um, and so it um, goes actually back to 1837. So, um, you know, well before the Civil War. Um, and it is really said to be haunted by a couple of main um, ghosts. Um, there's a lady and a man who are said to haunt it. Um, you know, I've talked to, I. Um, there's a retired Cleveland police officer named Chuck Gove who does um, tours of, you know, haunted places in Cleveland. And and he said many people on his tours have seen these, you know, ghosts there. Um, sometimes they're by the organ. There's an old classic organ in there. Um, here are the ladies wandering around. And no, nobody really knows, like, who they are. Like, I would have thought it would have been a haunted lady from, you know, like a Spanish-American um, war soldier or, you know, something like that. Um, but there's, there's this mysterious um, man and woman um, one in white, one in green, that are said to just kind of be seen there. Um, it's interesting because I think, you know, because it is such an old building, it's, it's often those old buildings that you hear about that that, that you, ha- you hear these stories about the most, right, because they have so much history. Like that's the armory is very close to Cleveland's Playhouse Square, um, which dates back to 1922. It's, it's the largest um, performing arts complex outside of, of New York City, and that's also supposedly very haunted, and that makes sense because of all the theater people you know who've who've been there over the years. But interestingly, they were also supposed to have a, a ghost in green who who shows up there. Maybe it's the same one as from the armory. I'm not sure. Okay, and you know, um, you know, we're winding down the show to about five minutes. Uh, If people are looking for uh, a great book to uh, get at, over, you know, Christmas, and you know, you're, you have a Mark Twain literature class coming up in the, yeah. for the spring se- semester, uh, get a copy of Mark Twain's America Then and Now. Uh, is there? It, it, it's available on webs, uh, uh, the Amazon website. Uh, is there 
any other uh, websites or Facebook pages you want to plug? Um, yeah, I mean, if people are in the area, um, always I have a Facebook page called facebook.com slash lost Cleveland, which I share on which I share like information about events I'm doing. I'm doing on, for example, on December 16th at an Irish pub in Cleveland called PJ McIntyre's. I'll be doing a, a talk about Mark Twain in the book and showing about photos, um, including ones that are not from the book, you know, just for rare photos for about an hour. Um, they can find out about events like that. I also have an Instagram um, page at Lost Cleveland in which I just kind of like like to show historic photos of Cleveland and, um, mm-hmm. you know, Mark Twain and all sorts of things like that. I just, um, you know, really just love to – I just look a, as I know you are, just a big fan of history. And so um, I just try to, like, share cool historic photos, um, you know, I found or just stories I'm working on. Like, for example, I – toured an old speakeasy that was uncovered in a building under renovation, you know, not too long ago. And I shared pictures of that. So that kind of thing. Okay. Well, and of course, well, like if you're like, look, check out your local independent bookstores too. I always like to encourage people to do that. Okay. Well, it, Laura, you have a very interesting book. Uh, it's, it's a great biography the photos that you took, or you know, the you know the, your staff took, are almost from the exact same angles. Uh, you know, you learn more, you know, little details like the Boston bookstore that's now at Ch- Chipotle. I know. See Gosh, things, isn't that funny? Yeah. See how things have changed over the last you know 140 uh, years or so, but uh, it. it yeah, it, it was really a great time learning about Mark Twain, uh, reconstructing his life, and you know the Christmas story is fun. You know, stopping there, it's good, good, uh, good time of the year to place yourself in a movie, and you know ch- check out all all the other things going on in Cleveland. And you know, Barbara, do you want to? Yeah. Uh, get get ready to wrap up the show. This is just a terrific e- evening. Th- thank you so much, Laura. Oh, thank you, Mark and Barbara, so much for the invitation. I, I'm honored to be a guest, and I'm I'm already looking forward to next year in Cleveland. We'll do the Christmas story experience. Cool. Sounds so, sounds great. Yeah, we'll want to do do the uh, marathon. So, uh, Barbara wants. To step in and wrap up the show. Thank you again. And this is Laura uh, DeMarco, and her book is Mark Twain's America Then and Now. Great. Thank you so much. Good night. All right. Okay. Thank you so much, everybody, for being with us tonight. Do make sure that you tune in. Check out the website. That's at barbaradulong.com. It'll have the most recent show coming up and when and where you and how you can listen to it. And check out the archives on our YouTube channel. That's Barbara DeLong as well. Uh, And let us know what you think and give us any suggestions that uh, we might be able to expand our our vistas on. Also, if you enjoyed it, please do sign up and um, subscribe to the channel so you can be notified when we do even more interesting and wonderful shows. Thanks so much, everybody, and good night.